I'd like to now welcome uh, Hallie Chu to come. We are just coming off of the Chinese New Year, and we couldn't think of a more appropriate way for her to come and read today's scripture for us in Cantonese, uh, if you don't speak Cantonese, which I'm going to guess most of you don't. Uh, of course, it's printed there in your bulletin. Hallie, please come. Scripture reading today is in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. 有极多的人和耶稣同行，他转过来对他们说：“人到我这里来，若不爱我，胜过爱自己的父母、妻子、儿女、兄弟、姐妹和自己的性命，就不能做我的门徒。凡不配做自己十字架的，跟从我的，也
Or are you smitten by him? Full disclosure, I do hope that by the end, we all leave here a little more smitten than terrified today. So given that, according to Jesus, following him costs much. So let's consider this cost. Let's consider the call of the cost, the counting of the cost, and then the riches in the cost. All right, so first, the call of the cost. Uh, One of the most disconcerting parts of this passage has to be Jesus' striking words about hating those that we are supposed to love most in this world. And then he goes on to literally list those that typically we love most. Our mother, our father, our sister, our brother, our wife, and our children. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, let me first start off not by noting necessarily what he's saying, but let's note what he's not saying first. So Jesus can't literally mean that we are to hate these people, as there are numerous passages, passages in the Bible that undermine that idea. All right, so of course we have uh, passages like uh, in the Ten Commandments, which tells us to honor a mother and father. You have passages like Ephesians 5 that tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Uh, In Colossians 3, you have uh, Paul telling fathers to not embitter or discourage their children. And since 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was without sin, he could not possibly be disobeying these commands in the Bible. So what then is happening here in Luke 14? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind, both of which I think give clarity to what's happening, uh, but also both of which are going to require us for the next few minutes to take off our Western modern hats uh, and look at what Jesus is saying from the perspective of this ancient Semitic perspective. All right, here's two things in particular we have to keep in mind when reading this passage. Number one is we have to see the um, hyperbolic rhetoric that's happening here, right? So in ancient Semitic literature, in linguistics, there was this way of speaking where hate was not necessarily used to describe what we tend to use as hate. So when we see the word hate in the Bible, we usually are thinking of some kind of active hostility that someone has toward someone else or something else. And it's important to note that in in ancient times, this was at times that could be used, uh, hate could be used in that way. But there was another way of using this term that did not communicate active hostility, but rather emphasized the idea of loving something or someone less than something else. It was a way of emphasizing that idea. And you can see this in a couple of places. In the parallel passage in in uh, Matthew's gospel, in chapter 10, Matthew is writing about this same situation, and he puts it this way, that anyone who loves their father and mother, wife and children more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, There's another great example of this in Genesis 29, where you have Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah, In one verse, it says that Jacob hated Leah, but in another, it clarifies and says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So in other words, the the word hate is emphasizing a certain kind of love and loyalty and not necessarily active hostility. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing we have to keep in mind is also the, the cultural context. 
So in many Eastern contexts of the past, and even in many today, family was the center of life's center of gravity for people. In the individualistic West, we largely have rejected that sense of duty to uh, family, as mostly we marry who we want, we take jobs that we want, we move where we want, we live where we want, and we really don't have any obligation in the same way to the opinions of our family. But that's not the case in many Eastern cultures, especially in ancient ones. In those cultures, the well-being of your family, the honor of your family, the obligation and primacy of your family was everything to you. You'd rather die than dishonor or disappoint your family. And here, what we see here is Jesus calling out what is most important to his hearers, to his listeners, telling them, if you are to love me, you need to do that which seems totally counterintuitive and you need to remove your family from being the center of your life. In this context, Jesus' words are striking as he's calling them to love him more than they would love those who they love most. He's challenging them to leave behind some of their most important obligations in some sense. He's challenging that which they assumed was going to be their life's trajectory. Now, this, according to Jesus, is what it takes to follow him. And let's be realistic here for a minute. This is fundamentally not how most people treat Jesus. This idea of having to give up the things that are most important in life, that's not how we often think about Jesus. For, G- for many, the title Christian is nothing more than a cultural marker. It's certainly not some life's commitment marker. And this is one of the reasons, I think, as I look at the landscape of Christianity within the United States in particular, I think this is one of the reasons for the apparent downturn or decline of Christianity in the West, is that there is not really necessarily less Christians, but there are definitely less of these kinds of Christians. And what I mean by that is this. So in a, in a nation that has been deeply um, impacted and shaped by Christianity, there have been essentially three groups of people that have existed in the West. One group of people were those who have just flat out rejected Christianity completely. That's one group on one end of the spectrum. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have these kinds of Luke 14 Christians, those that have given their whole lives and put Jesus at the center, other end of the spectrum. But the largest group, I think, has actually been in what some have called the mushy middle. The mushy middle is essentially a cultural Christianity that has no real commitments to the faith. The mushy middle is what's declining and shrinking and disappearing and will continue to disappear and shrink. And the reason why the mushy middle existed was because for a long time, to be a Christian in our culture provided you certain benefits. So to be a Christian in our culture actually made people think more of you. It was to be trusted. You know, if you were a a church-going person, people trusted you more. I mean, there was even a time where if you were to go to a bank and try to get a loan, if they knew that you went to church, you'd be more likely to get that loan. That, of course, has shifted because it doesn't have the cultural cachet to be a Christian that it used to. And so the mushy middle has decreased. And what you see more is the the other ends of the spectrums growing. 
Now, the other thing that I think is worth noting, and maybe to get a little bit more provocative, um, I think we are also in the midst of a reckoning in the American church where Luke 14 is making plain to us the idolatry that has been deeply embedded in the American church. There's an idolatry that has existed, again, in two ends of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, there is this idolatry of nationalism and xenophobia that exists within the American church. And Luke 14, I think, would make plain that idolatry. But then there's another end of the spectrum where there's also an idolatry of cultural capitulation within the church, where the church becomes more shaped by the cultural norms and ideals of the culture as opposed to biblical fidelity and Christ at the center, both of which are revealing affections that, uh, to something else other than faithfulness to Jesus. And the result is that those who are truly committed to Christ are viewed as crazy for their commitments. Right? It leaves both ends of the spectrum dumbfounded. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So there's one end of the spectrum where if you were a Luke 14 kind of Christian, some would be dumbfounded and say things like, wait, you actually go to church every Sunday? Or wait, you actually aren't having sex until you're married? Or wait, you actually give money to the church? Or wait, you think the Bible is all worth reading and learning and obeying? Wait, you actually forgive people that screwed you over or have disrespected you? I mean, it's dumbfounding. But then, of course, you've got the other end of the spectrum. If you are a Luke 14 kind of Christian, there will be others who will be dumbfounded and will say, wait, 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 wait. You don't believe that the United States and her constitution are God's ideal government for all of human history? Or wait, you don't believe that capitalism is God's ordained economic system gifted to all? Or wait, you don't believe, or wait, you, you believe rather that the United States has consistently maintained unjust systems and structures and attitudes that continue to marginalize people today? It's dumbfounding. Because when you're a Luke 14 Christian, it makes plain the ways that there are other commitments other than Jesus, the idolatry becomes plain. And what we see here in the purpose of Jesus' hyperbolic language is driving home the point that to truly be a follower of Jesus is to reject anything and everything that does not allow you to put him first. Everything and everyone must be loved less, far less than Jesus himself. And anything short of that is not to truly follow him. And it's likely idolatry. Now, to get really practical with that for a second, let me just ask you this question. What in your life, if Jesus were to come to you and say, I need you to give that up to follow me, what would be really hard to give up? I think for some, like his hearers, that might be family, in some sense, the, the primacy of family. Another example, a uh, biblical example, I think is a great one, is the example of the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, listen, I've obeyed all of your commandments. What more do I lack? Do you remember Jesus' response? He said, go and sell all your possessions. And the rich young ruler went away sad after hearing this. So maybe for some here, it's your family. Maybe for others, 
You're more like the rich young ruler. And if Jesus were to come, maybe Jesus would have to come and say, I need you to give up your career or your financial security to follow me. For others, maybe it would be your sex life or your sexuality. For others, maybe it would be your national identity. As I was reflecting on this this past week, I wonder how many Christians, if Jesus were to come to them and say, I need you to give up being an American citizen, and I need you to become a citizen of an S-hole nation, how many would walk away sad? Jesus requires much of us. He requires everything of us, and anything and everything else must be loved less than him. So that's the cost. But also, let's take a look now at what it means to count that cost, to consider the cost. Now, of course, um, a lot of this could be rather disconcerting. But what's interesting about this passage is what Jesus does next after saying all these things. So in verses 28 through 32, Jesus tells uh, uh, two stories uh, where he essentially says, listen, I'm going to tell you what it's going to take to follow me. Right? So be sure that you're counting the cost before joining me. And he does it in these two stories. He says in the first story, he says that just like a builder needs to count the cost of a tower uh, before he builds, so also do we need to count the cost before pursuing and following him. And then in the second story, he says that like a king stepping into a battle for which he is outmanned, so also should we not come and follow Jesus unless we're ready to go. And this is Jesus saying, listen, there's no fine print. I'm not hiding anything from you. There's going to be no bait and switch. To follow me will require everything, so count the cost. But I want to take a look at one of the emphases that Jesus makes in his parable. In particular, uh, I want to look at what he does in the second story. So in the first story, what you have is the builder, where Jesus essentially is saying, yeah, this is going to be expensive to build a tower, so you should really consider whether or not to get involved. And it's a little bit of a passive thing. You could do it, you could not do it. But then in the second story, Jesus lays out an interesting story, parable, where he speaks of this king, a king that cannot be passive. See, the king in this parable has one of two choices. He's either going to go out and fight a battle, even though he's outnumbered by 10,000 men, or he can send a delegation to negotiate peace. Right? There's no passivity here, though. Rather, he must ask, act. He must make a decision and realize that there's going to be consequences to the actions either way. So when Jesus is calling you to be a disciple, when he's calling me to be a disciple, he is certainly telling us that it will be costly, but he's also saying you have to choose because there will be consequences either way. And here's the point. To not choose Jesus as Savior and Lord is to choose something else as Savior and Lord. Right? That's what's being presented to us. To not choose Jesus is to choose something else. And here's what I find interesting about that idea is that there are some who make this assumption that in the world there are essentially those who have faith in a God or in Savior, and then there's others who don't have that faith, that there are the religious and that there are the non-religious. But whether you're a religious person or not, 
It's important to know that all of us choose a savior. All of us have something that we look to to save us. Jerry Bridges, uh, a known, well-known writer and theologian, he was reflecting on this concept that he calls functional saviors. And he writes this about functional saviors. Let me just read this to you. He says that sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity and security and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. In other words, we chase functional saviors to provide us hope and value and worth and joy and peace and purpose. And to not choose Christ is to choose a functional savior. But here's the, here's the rub. Uh, whatever we use as a functional savior will require no less of you than what Jesus is asking for. All functional saviors will ask for your whole life. Jesus is asking for it, and so will these other functional saviors. They all do the same. And so the question needs to be for us today, not am I a person of faith that worships? In my opinion, that is a decidedly yes. It's decidedly yes. But rather, the question we should ask is, because I am a person of faith who worships, what does my God offer me? Because your functional Savior, your God, is going to require everything of you. The question will be, what does that God offer you? In other words, counting the cost is more than considering what Jesus requires of us. It is also counting the cost by sitting down with our functional saviors and honestly assessing what it will take from me and maybe, more importantly, what it offers me in return. There is no functional savior that will not take everything from you and in the end, in my opinion, give you nothing more than a fleeting and fragile existence. Let me give you some examples. For some here, our functional saviors might be our career or financial security. But we all know, if that's it, we all know that there's a 2008 crash right around the corner, don't we? I mean, we would have given everything for that security and then in the end be left with nothing, all while, ironically, having been insecure about that security the whole time. It's fleeting. It's fragile. Maybe our functional savior is our relationship status. But what's interesting about that, being the functional savior, is that your value and your worth is always going to be tied to someone else. And if you're honest about these people, you know that they will fail you and not be able to give you what, they, what you want. And if they try to fulfill that role, the weight of that burden is going to crush them. It's fleeting. It's fragile. For others, our functional saviors might be our family and our friends. And it's hard and a painful thought, but we know this to be true 
But if that is the case, there's always the potential for a helicopter crash or sickness or tragedy. If they are everything, your identity and your fulfillment only goes as far as they are able to go. It's fleeting. It's fragile. For others, our functional uh, saviors might actually be our righteousness, our goodness. And the burden, ironically, to try to portray yourself as truly righteous is a burden that will bury you. Because deep down, you'll know that you're not nearly as righteous as everyone assumes you are. And God forbid you ever fail and become disgraced because at that point, life would cease to be worth living at that point because that functional Savior is fleeting. It's fragile. Your functional Savior will take and take all while giving you nothing but a fleeting and fragile foundation. And so I wonder... Have you counted the cost? Because yes, Jesus asks a lot from us. In fact, like functional saviors, Jesus asks everything from us. But here's the difference. The difference is what he offers to you is far greater and far different than what the functional savior could ever offer you. Which brings us to the last point, which is the riches in the cost. You know, the other jarring statement that Jesus makes here in uh, verse 27 in our passage is when describing what he means, what it means to follow him, not only does he say that we need to um, love him most supremely, but he also says that we need to carry a cross. Now, just to make sure that we all understand that context, the cross was uh, a form of state execution, So this is an odd thing for Jesus to be saying. But Jesus is not being vague at all about what it means to follow him. Rather, what Jesus is saying is simply this. If you're going to follow me, you must die. Now, before I jump into telling us why, that does not necessarily mean we physically die, which I think maybe some of us are thinking that. I do want us to sit with the fact that the call to die is going to be a burden that some Christians bear. I mean, as Luke records these words, he certainly has in mind that things are not going really well with the Roman Empire. Christians are being persecuted, uh, and a terrible persecution is about to come where Christians would be brutally killed for their faith. And then, of course, over the last 2,000 years, uh, many Christians have suffered the same fate. Christians around the world, thousands every year, are killed as a result of their faith. And so for some, this call to carry the cross is going to actually mean die. And may we never take for granted the safeties and the freedoms that we have here. But even though we do not face the reality of death for our faith, we are nonetheless called to die. And the fact that we don't face physical death, I think too often inoculates us from embracing the extent to which we must die. But if not physically, then what exactly dies? Well, in a, a well-known, in his very well-known book on discipleship, 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a very famous statement in reflection of this idea. It's part of your reflection quote on the front of your bulletin. I, I want to read to you a little bit more of an extended uh, quote than what's there. Let me read this for you. It says, The cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with a call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Since this happens at the beginning of the Christian life, the cross can never be merely a tragic ending to an otherwise happy religious life. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, there's so much to unpack in that statement, but I want to hone in on one specific statement that Bonhoeffer makes there, specifically where he says that the cross can never be merely a tragic ending to an otherwise happy religious life. That statement, I think, is a perfect reflection of where we find the riches that exist in the cost of following Jesus. I mean, why is carrying a cross and dying never merely a tragic end? Why, when all other functional saviors take everything from us, which is a tragic end, why is following Jesus not that? Why does this tragic end not come? Here's the answer to that question. It's the resurrection. The cross is not and never has been the final say to the work of Jesus. The cross is the means by which our idolatrous attempts at creating another God to worship, another Savior to put our hope in, it's on the cross that that other Savior is put to death. The idolatry is put to death with Christ on the cross. The idolatry that is the functional Savior must die in us. But if we are unified with Christ in his death, that also means that we are united with him in his resurrection and the victory and new life that comes through the resurrection of Jesus is ours to have. Romans 8 tells us how this happens. And it says this, let me just read this for you. It says that as a result of the work of Jesus, we are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, cross, in order that we may also share in his glory, the resurrection. I mean, do you hear that? That when we share in his sufferings, when we carry our cross, when we die to the old man, when we abandon the uh, attachments of this world and surrender to Christ, we are not left with a mere tragic ending, rather we end up as co-heirs with Christ's glory. And what does it mean to be a co-heir? Well, verse 15 in Romans 8 speaks of adoption, tells us that we are adopted and that we become children of God. And as children, we become heirs and all the riches and promises given to Christ for all eternity are also ours. When we're adopted into God's family as a result of Jesus... We now have full access to God, full access. You know, there's, a, um, of course, a classic story you likely know, uh, Little Orphan Annie. She was an orphan whose only hope in the world 
at one point rested in this alcoholic, abusive caretaker who took and took and took and took and never gave anything back. She offered Annie nothing more than a fleeting, fragile existence. But of course, Annie eventually ends up in the home of the exorbitantly wealthy Mr. Warbucks. And this, of course, transforms her life. And she gets to this point, of course, where she rejects and leaves behind the abuse of her former caretaker and eventually becomes the daughter of a loving and caring and compassionate, generous father. And as a result, all of his riches are now hers because she's made an heir, a child of his. I mean, all that Christ has is ours, for we have full access to God, and the riches are beyond our comprehension, riches that cannot be taken away by any suffering or any death or any sorrow. I mean, what other functional Savior promises that? And why would we stay with the alcoholic, abusive caretaker who wants nothing more than to just take and take and gives nothing more than sorrow in the end and not embrace this loving and generous father wanting to bring you into his kingdom both now and forever. And so, yes, Jesus asks a lot of us to follow him. But Jesus offers us more than we could fathom because in life, and in the life, this life and in the life to come, he gives us new life as he calls us to pick up our cross and follow him, that the old man might die so that we might walk in this newness of life. Let's trust that these promises are true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things that we learn about in your word. We thank you that... Yes, Jesus certainly asks much of us. To follow Jesus will require giving uh, um, up uh, everything, that there might be nothing that is more important to us than him. And God, I do pray that you would make plain to us what our functional saviors are. We all have them. But God, I also pray that you would help us see that our functional saviors cannot give us what Jesus gives us, which is the promises that come as a result of his death and his resurrection. We trust that there is new life, abundant life, riches beyond what we could fathom if we would just put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and let that old man, let those functional saviors die on the cross. And so we, we give those to you. And now as we Turn to the table. What a perfect and beautiful reminder of the truths that we've just heard as we now come to this table to be nourished. I pray that you would meet us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.